it was always amusing to watch that happen, to realize, oh my God, I'm in a gay store. Every lesbian who walked in that store walked away feeling better about herself. From the University of North Texas in Denton, I'm Delaney Beck. And I'm Morgan Reese, and this is Out in Oak Lawn, a queer history of Dallas, a podcast about the largest neighborhood in Texas. In this episode, we are going to explore the businesses of Oaklawn and the impact they had on forming the community. We are about to embark on an exploration of a neighborhood with such a rich history, distinct charm, and a sense of community that is hard to find elsewhere. When you think of Dallas, you might picture the towering skyscrapers of downtown or the sprawling ranches of North Dallas, but just a few streets away from the city center lies a neighborhood in stark contrast to the familiar urban landscapes. Oaklawn, affectionately known as the Gaberhood Dallas, is an enchanting mix of historic architecture, trendy boutiques, eclectic dining options, and vibrant LGBT community. It has become an impactful space for many. In this episode, we'll hear from patrons and business owners who share their personal experiences and give our glimpse into the unique atmosphere that makes Oaklawn special as a part of the Dallas queer community. The nightlife of Oaklawn was formative in drawing the queer community to the Strip and making space for people to come together and be themselves. Oaklawn called on the common interests both then and now to go out with your friends in a safe space to be free for the night. The vibrant and inclusive nightlife of Oaklawn played a pivotal role in attracting and uniting the LGBTQ community. A major figure in the formation of Oaklawn's nightlife scene was Frank Cavan, founder of the father company to many of the gay bars in Dallas titled Cavan Enterprises. Cavan took his first step into bar ownership in El Paso in the late 50s to the early 60s. It was also in El Paso where he became involved in the gay scene and started finding the gay community. He noticed Dallas only had three gay bars when he relocated there in 1969 and took it upon himself to begin to open more. Here's Kathy Jack, the current director of operations for Cavan Enterprises, speaking from Station 4. I ended up in Oak Lawn because I spent so much time um, at a place called the High Country, which was not exactly in Oak Lawn, but it was close. And I worked at the time in an auto parts store. I hated my job. And I had a friend of mine living with me at the time. And we both kind of hated our jobs. And so we started going to this place called the High Country. And um, I got to know the owner fairly well. And he he said, you know, you're here a lot. And I he said, I need somebody to start teaching country western dance lessons and i didn't know anything about that at all um i mean i could kind of dance country western but wasn't certainly wasn't a professional but i said yeah i'll do it you know and then i kind of crash coursed on country western dancing and that's how i started and um from there i start i managed a bar for him uh in kind of kind of in the oakland uh cedar springs area uh, called the Unicorn. And then from the Unicorn, I came over to Cavan Enterprises, and here I've been for the last 36 years. Cavan was a vital figure in the growth of Oaklawn into an iconic neighborhood by opening bars at a time when homosexuality was illegal and dangerous in public, allowing gays and lesbian spaces to be themselves. Unfortunately, he passed in 1988 and did not get to see his continued success of his enterprise and the successes for gay liberation in Texas, but his obituary memorizes him highly writing that he always put people first and profit second. Jack also described him with much veneration when discussing opening Sue Ellen's under Cabin Enterprises. He got very ill towards the end of 88, and I went in and saw him just before he passed away, and 
he said, you know, your bar is going to be ready soon. And I said, yeah, we're hoping to get it ready for the first part of January in 1989. And he said, I don't think I'll be around when you open it. But he said, I know it's in good hands. I know you'll do a good job. So that, um, you know, he was a really great business guy. He was all about the, he always said, I'm all about the pennies and nickels and dimes, because if you got those, then you, the big dollars are going to follow. Um, you know, he just, he was really good at what he did. He would always come into the bars um, and kind of put on, you know, what, what we used to say, holding court, you know, everybody would crowd around him and he would just put on a little show for everybody. And that's what everybody wanted. They just wanted to talk to him and hear about all his stories because he'd been doing it. Started in Florida back in 1970 and he came here in 1975. And so, you know, that's before a lot of these people were even born. So it was a, he was a great guy and a very, very, very smart businessman. And that's probably why we are still where we are today because of all the lessons he taught us when he was still around. Kevin's impact persists through his four bars in the neighborhood still operating today, including Sue Ellen's, JR's, Throckmorton Mining Company, and Station 4. Each contains its own unique history and has been vital in shaping Oaklawn not only as a neighborhood but as a community. At the time of Cavan Enterprise's beginnings, the illegality of these establishments due to homosexual conduct laws made it dangerous to not only be an owner, but a patron. Here's Richard Longstaff, a former Oaklawn business owner and bar patron in the 80s. You know, a very risky thing was going to a gay bar, as I found out too. I didn't realize the police were outside taking license plate numbers too, but they were, illegally. Here's Kathy Jack again with details on what would happen if the police raided a bar. You know, they came in, uh, flashed their badges, turned on all the lights, or they had us or had them turn on all the lights, uh, got everybody up against the wall. Everybody had to present an ID. Those that didn't have an ID got arrested. Um, Back in those days, and even before then, if they walked in and saw anybody touching, uh, like two men touching each other, even if it's just an arm around each other, they went to jail for public lewdness. Um, If they were doing anything else, kissing, uh, then they went to jail for public lewdness. You couldn't touch you couldn't touch each other. Cavan Enterprises Station 4 in particular played an important role in Oakland's history due to a raid that occurred on October 25, 1979. The club's name at the time was the Village Station, and this police raid is sometimes referred to as the Stonewall of Dallas. However, the nightlife of Oakland was resilient, according to Kathy Jack. They closed the bar for the night, and um, they were able to open the next day. And for no, for no apparent reason other than they just wanted to flex their muscles a little bit. Station 4, now more colloquially known as S4, is home to the Rose Room, a drag stage like no other. Drag and drag culture are vibrant staples of the Oakland nightlife scene as a whole. The Rose Room boasts the distinction of being one of the largest drag venues in the state, with their website declaring that every rising star dreams of showcasing their illusion and stepping onto the Rose Room stage. Jenna Skye, an active member of the Dallas drag community for nearly 20 years, gave us insight into what the Rose Room means to the performers and the public. There was a time when the gay bars were the only place that gay people could go and feel comfortable. And drag drag queens were superheroes in the gay community. 
Although acceptance for queer people has risen since the 90s and early 2000s when Sky first started performing at the Rose Room, for many, Oakland is still a place of comfort. Because of this tight-knit community, the Rose Room and Dallas Drag have been able to foster entrepreneurs. Drag performers are themselves a business and often have to diversify to make ends meet. Sky keeps a day job working for Southern Methodist University, only 10 minutes away from Station 4. Here's Sky on what being a performer is like on the business side. And I, I, of course, tell everyone that is wanting to do drag and to entertain to get your life together first. Because even if you're fortunate enough to make a living as an artist, your responsibility is to reinvest constantly in your craft. And, and so it's really hard to have a comfortable life you know, in most places, there are no benefits and health insurance and 401ks. And so it is basically all money that you are often paid cash. So there are no withholdings. You don't want to skip out on, you know, the IRS because it, it has caught up on the best. Um, and they will find ways, you know, and they start now. The, the IRS will penalize the bar that continues to pay you when you don't pay your taxes. And then that will result in you never getting booked. Um, I know this firsthand. We check everyone's social security number when they book with us. And if it doesn't pass, they've got one more opportunity to get us a good social security number um, that isn't flagged by the IRS. And otherwise, you don't get booked anymore because it, it'll it'll haunt the, the, the bars now. I mean, the, the IRS is serious about that. But I, I always offer advice about how to organize your money and separate your tips into an account so that you know if you're consistent with it the government will take it when you want to buy a house or a car um how to document your expenditures so that when you have to pay taxes on that money you're only paying for a third of every dollar um you know i try to be knowledgeable on those things so i can help those that are trying to make a living off this because it is very very difficult to do despite the unpredictability of working in drag there's something special about it that makes performers willing to take that risk. The Rose Room at Station 4 for many is more than worth it, being known for its high production value and celebrity patrons from across the country. We look at the Rose Room as far more than a local venue. Um, there are entertainers that would break their leases and move to Dallas to be part of the Rose Room cast, and have, historically. The nightlife of Oak Lawn is not the only reason for queer people to travel to Dallas and start anew. Equally important to the economy and community of Oak Lawn is the mom and pop shops that sprinkle the street. There was a flower store, a florist, which was so cool because once things like that got in and there were some lesbians who spent a lot of time down there, but the gay men, but once you had those a really nice little flower shop run by a gay man. You're going to go in there and buy your flowers because you're, because what happened is people, we started that discussion about go into your community and spend the community there, spend it in your homegrown businesses, which is all of those businesses along Cedar Springs at the time were homegrown mine and, and crossroads market and, and the flower shop, and uh, there was a tattoo store right behind Hunky's. Uh, yeah, yeah. And they and they sold uh, vintage items and clothing and stuff. 
That was Kay Vincent, a former business owner in Oaklawn, who opened her lesbian bookstore Curious Times in 1987. The businesses of Oakland have become integral to the fabric of the community and have been remembered for decades by those who hold them dear. Together, we will explore some of these businesses, gaining insight into their stories and how they have been successfully woven into the fabric of Oakland. According to Kay Vincent, activism was what pushed her to open her lesbian bookstore in Cedar Springs. I, I had really kind of moved out of journalism. I had I had done some long-form pieces at Channel 8, um, documentaries. I, I I went to the, the PBS station there. I did a lot of TV, but I just, it wasn't working for me and I wasn't getting to do the kind of journalism I wanted. So I just kind of dropped out of it. And, um, and I uh, started getting involved in lesbian politics. According to Kay Vincent, women were not often visitors to Oakland when her business first opened. We opened in uh, February of 1987. And I say we because I was not by myself in this venture. I had met a woman. I was in a relationship at the time. And um, I I met this other woman who was very active. And, uh, you know, I left the gal I was with and went got involved with this other gal who was much more political than the woman I had been with. And I, I was driven by that and sort of, I I'm 35, I'm 30, I'm 34. I'm very young. I have a lot of energy. I've I'm when I was at channel eight, I was a very high profile reporter. I did a series of very um, intense investigations about the way that the Dallas school district spent money. So I left television news, very high profile. People knew me. So this is what I took with me as I went into curious times and um, started doing the activism. It took us a little bit of time to, um, to get some customers in there because women were not used to coming to Cedar Springs to do anything because they knew they were going to be at a, a men's bar and they had, maybe they had a lot of gay boyfriends and, um, but, but to come down there for a reason, like to buy a book, a lesbian novel, to look for videos, it, it just wasn't there. It was kind of tricky in the beginning because we had to spend so much of our money, uh, on book, on the, uh, retail side of it, books, my partner, my business partner, and my lover, as we called him back in that time, um, she was a jeweler. She was a custom jeweler. And she had had a little tiny corner of Crossroads Market where she had been selling custom jewelry to gay men who traditionally, because they're men, they were making a lot of money. So the money that was spent on Cedar Springs was coming from men. And so because women just didn't have that kind of money. So she, when she and I moved into Curious Times, she brought her clientele with her. So we now had a really good solid clientele of people who had men who had money to spend. 
So we tried to diversify our uh, inventory, even though we were a lesbian focused, lesbian feminist focused bookstore. We, we also carried books about grief and death and dying because a lot of us had friends, gay men, friends who were dying, who were very sick. We also had, oh, in our counters where the registers were, we had these point of, you know, point of interest, you know, people come in, oh, look at those pretty earrings. Well, the gay men loved, we loved to come in and buy our jewelry. Everybody was getting piercings back then. And, and, and we, my, my, uh, my partner, the jeweler, um, she would make piercing jewelry. So even though we were a lesbian centric, we really had another client that these gay men came in and they were very, I think they really sustained us in, especially in the very beginning. In the eighties, women owning businesses was on the rise, but even today, majority of the bars and stores in Oakland are male owned Owning a lesbian business in particular was something Kay Vincent and her partner knew would be more difficult. In fact, to get a business loan, Kay Vincent, her partner, and their silent business partner had to identify their business as a woman's bookstore. We traveled this road totally understanding that, you know, it was not going to necessarily be easy. But I think the thing that kept us going was that we didn't ever think, we just kept, we just put our hearts into it and, and things came. And I'm, I know that sounds really sort of woo woo and stuff. And, you know, it's not, some people would say, well, what kind of business plan was that? Well, I don't know what kind we could have had. Uh, This was kind of by the seat of your pants sort of business plan because it was especially women, you know, we, were up against odds every time we turned the corner. If you want to talk about business. And so we just said, well, we're going to do it and see what happens. And I, you know, the community was so high profile then, and the community was so invested in itself and so wanting to change things that, there were two national marches on Washington, I think, within a really short period of time. Mm-hmm. And all of that energy kept people coming down to the strip, kept, and the more they're there, the more money they're spending, and the more they're contributing to the community. And the more we bring lesbians into it, the more it becomes sort of a, it's true blended self. Kay Vinson cites her journalistic past as something that helped bolster the purpose she wanted her store to provide to the lesbian community. I was, I was usually out front with the cash register, chatting people up, selling stuff. I, I had no retail background. I'm a journalist. I'm used to interviewing people, which was kind of fun because I had a lot of, I, a lot of the women used to like to come in and just be in that energy. Mm-hmm. So they'd want to come in and talk because they knew somebody was there. They knew that somebody who understood who they were was in that in that shop. And so we kind of were satisfying a lot of needs that were in the community. And 
you know, quite frankly, the women didn't spend as much money, especially in the beginning. And I I get that. And um, we were taking a risk, but we thought it was worth the risk. Kay Vincent wanted Curious Times to be a place where lesbians felt comfortable and understood in an at-the-time male-dominated strip and community. I I am I'm confident that that the existence, the fact that um, Curious Times was there, there almost to a a person, every lesbian who walked in that store walked away feeling better about herself, I think. And I, and the store, the store brought some, some beautiful things to, to the lesbian community. And I think they all walked away knowing that they were, they could hold their head high. They could be a lesbian. Um, You know, it took some time, but I think, I think it was about building up, I don't want to say confidence, but it's kind of like that. It's like building just, you know, if, if we could stand there and have that shop be there and be open and have that inventory available for them, they they walked away knowing they there was a big deal. It was a big deal for them. And, um, you know, we were we were glad to do it because we were glad to do it. A pillar of Oaklawn's business history is the Crossroads Market, a de facto community center for Oaklawn. It acted as a bookstore and general store. Here's William Wayborn, one of the original owners of the Crossroads Market. Well, it was it became the largest bookstore between San Francisco and New Orleans, and we had customers who came from, you know, Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Arkansas. A lot of people came in and bought the books. Uh, that was, of course, before the internet. So they would come in and they would buy an armload of books and uh, we'd see them again in three months and they'd buy more books. Like Kay Vincent, William Wayborn also provided a wide array of products that catered to the wants and needs of the community. Uh, But we sold almost everything that was gay related. We had hundreds or thousands of card fronts, greeting cards. We had magazines. We had uh, Bill and Terry uh, refinished furniture, and we sold that in the store. We had candy and coffee and candles and you name it. It was in that store. It was very much a general store. Well, we, you know, we were also a distributor for uh, gay publications, and it would be really funny. We had a lot of, uh, you know, office workers come in at noontime, and sometimes it would be a couple, and you would see the woman trying to pick out greeting cards because we had we had thousands of card fronts and the husband would be wandering around the store and suddenly see one of the gay magazines and head in a different direction so we we were always (laughs) it was always amusing to watch that happen to realize oh my god i'm in a gay store the homosexual conduct law also known as section 2106 of the texas penal code still outlawed homosexuality at the time of the opening of the crossroads market in 1980 the bookstore evolved into a place of meeting and discussion about the movement for gay liberation. Standing right in the center of Oakland, it served as a cornerstone of the community. Another early business owner, Richard Longstaff, who opened a clothing store called Union Jack in August 1971. Longstaff cites his business and those of his friends as places where they could be themselves and organize. He mentions his friends Bill Hargis and Ray Hardin 
Hargis and Harden owned the old village Valtina, a bathhouse with a bar below it. Uh, so they had three three businesses, gay businesses there. And we, we got to talk about gay rights a lot, and it was exciting mm-hmm. just to talk about it, what we could do. Gay businesses and nightlife were some of the only places gays and lesbians at the time had to be themselves, meet other gay people, and organize. Oakland being a central hub for the growth of the gay business allowed a community to blossom from a single strip into a place of belonging, freedom, and found family. As we near the end of our look into the businesses of Oaklawn, we want to reflect on the community surrounding them. The businesses we've explored are not just places of commerce, but they are building blocks of a closely knit community. Here's Kathy Jack again with her view on Oaklawn's beginnings. You know, they said it was a blight, that we were a blight on the community. And in actuality, we were we were growing the community. You know, people were coming in so quickly, um, moving down into the area because we were revitalizing the area. In 1975, when Mr. Cavan bought, or not bought, but got all of his uh, buildings here, um, this was nothing but prostitutes and, and Johns on, on Cedar Springs, right where I'm standing, or literally right where I'm sitting. Um, this was it, it, that was the problem. He came in and cleaned it up, and then everybody started moving back into the area. And we were like, you know, back in 1975, if you were trying to do this, I understand because it was not a place you wanted to come down and hang out. It's dangerous. It was. It was. It was dirty. Um, you know, it was just not a good place. And so then, when he came in and and started opening up all these bars. Then people started moving into the apartments behind us. And, you know, why not be in the na- in the gay neighborhood? For Kay Vinson, she described early Oaklawn as a very urban, hip place that developed out of an undesirable area due to businesses popping up on the strip. Recently, if you've been there, it's nothing like what it was. I know you've seen pictures, you've heard descriptions and everything, but they had the fire station was there. The, my first memory of Cedar Springs, I was still at Channel 8. I was married and uh, we liked to go to all to, to some cow, some Western country bars. And there was this really sleazy one down on Oak Lawn, right? Kind of where the Bronx used to be. And um, I remember going in there uh, and it was, it was a part of town that was just, you know, there were hookers and, uh, by the fire station, the cops were kind of down there all the time, and and the bars were kind of really sleazy. There were some they stores just started showing up, and there was one store, and I really wish I could remember the name of it because it was this really cool store with kind of modern stuff in it. It was kind of for the times. It was like really hip and now. And and it was kind of big and open, lots of glass and these interesting things they would they would bring in. And um, in fact, I still have a print that I bought there one time of these flamingos. It was a 1948 print. It was very cool. But but the point here is that it was kind of an urban scene and up and coming urban scene when that building went in. And I think it was black. I think. I think it was black metal with all the windows. Somebody's going to remember the story, this name of it. It drew everybody, straight people and every people in the business community would come there because they could go across the street and eat lunch at the Bronx or 
There was another restaurant over there. So in the beginnings of Cedar Springs, my memory is that it it started shifting from that sleazy stuff because the cops were down there all the time. And it was, it was you know, it's Oaklawn and Cedar Springs for crying out loud. It's a connection to Turtle Creek. It's, you know, it's it's not a section you're that you're going to want to go down. Melrose Hotel, that first Methodist church in the city. So uh, this is my thinking about how this went. So this really nice building gets, business gets there. And it brings in a lot of people who have money. Straight people, probably the gay boys, and but a lot of straight people. So it was kind of a cool, hip and now place to go. Even though, according to Kay Vincent, the neighborhood is not the same as it used to be, Kathy Jack says the neighborhood has only gotten better. The entire strip currently filled with local bars and businesses that people in the community can feel at home in when going about their daily lives. Well, when I started uh, back in 1986, it was was a great place. I mean, it was a great place to work. It was a great place to live. And it's only gotten better. There were and still, still are many places to eat, many restaurants, many places to buy gifts, uh, clothes. Um, you know, the, the great thing is everything within a, I would say, within a three-block radius of, of Cedar Springs here between Oak Lawn and uh, Knight Street, they're all... Uh, you know, they're mom and pop shops, whether they're a, whether they're a bar or whether they're a, a restaurant. We don't have any chains other than a Valero uh, gas station um, and a Kroger. We don't have any chain stores. They're all uh, small businesses that have been opened by either the gay people in the community or the people that just love this community just because it's a great place to open a store. Um Nail salons um, are just a little bit of everything. Reflecting on our interviews, we would like to share our personal experience visiting Oaklawn and the sense of community that has stuck with us throughout this project. To guide us through this adventure, we had the pleasure of being led by two extraordinary individuals who have played significant roles in Oaklawn. The first is none other than Kathy Jack, a pillar of this community whose voice you've heard frequently throughout this series. Kathy's knowledge and passion for Oaklawn reflect the impact she has made and her guidance has been integral to our understanding of the businesses and nightlife of Oak Lawn. Robert Emery, the president of the Dallas Way and an infectiously fun storyteller, also joined Kathy Jack to lead us around their community. We had the opportunity to visit a majority of the businesses that line the street of Oak Lawn, and they're clearly the lifeblood of this community. Here's my co-host Delaney Beck and I's recollection of the class visit. Thank you, Morgan, for having me come talk to you about our class trip. It was a great time, and I hope our viewers get a piece of that experience from our retelling. Well, our visit started at the Crossroads, which is right at Cedar Springs and Oaklawn. And we started off in JR's, which is about right next to that, where we met up with Kathy Jack and Robert Emery. And then Robert told us all about the Rainbow Crosswalk and how there's now a historical marker there, which is really cool that they have that now. Another really interesting thing is how hands-on we got to be personally i believe learning about history is often taken away from the location so by bringing ourselves there we really got to not only experience a part of history but be a part of it in the way that we are documenting it for this class 
Yeah, I think that Oakland's a really great experience. Just go no matter whether it's day or night for anyone, whether you identify as a part of the community or not. I think that it's something that can really be informative just to learn about a community, whether you identify with it or even if you don't know much about it at all. I think that it's a really great experience to go down there and feel the history when you're walking into these different businesses. We want to thank you for listening and leave you with these words from Kay Vincent on how being a part of the community impacted frequenters of Oakland. For more on the lesbian community, check out the next episode, Girls Night Out. When Kay Vincent said that lesbians felt better about themselves after being in curious times, she perfectly embodied the goal of the neighborhood in a single sentence. Oakland is a home to many, no matter if it's a minute's walk away or a few hours drive because of the familial and liberating environment it fosters. The businesses and nightlife on the Strip are in part to thank. Out in Oakland is an undergraduate student-led project funded by the Department of History at the University of North Texas. This episode was researched and produced by Delaney Beck and Morgan Reese. Special thanks to our professor, Dr. Wesley Phelps, the UNT Library Special Collections Department, the Dallas Way, and the Portal to Texas History. Also thanks to Kathy Jack, Kay Vincent, William Wayborn, Richard Longstaff, and Jenna Skye for their insights onto the business and nightlife of Oakland. Special thank you to Brian Beck for his helps in recording. Our theme music was composed by Alexi Action. You can find more episodes and research notes on our website. <laughs>